0: Hello, and welcome to the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast, The Plodcast. It's your chance to come with us for an adventure into the countryside each week to meet rural folk, encounter marvellous wildlife, and enjoy a welcome blast of freedom and fresh air. My name is Fergus Collins, and I'm the host of the podcast. In this episode, we head to Dartmoor in Devon to wander through landscapes where local farmers have worked tirelessly to bring wildlife back to their fields and hills. So listen on for cuckoos, encounters with rare butterflies and some truly uplifting conversation with Tim Martin of the organisation Farm Wilder. A former producer at the BBC's Natural History Unit, Tim set up Farm Wilder to help farmers work more sustainably with the land and, as you'll hear, his work is really paying off. Our own Annabel Ross met him for a walk in the dramatic Devon Wilds.
2: Where are we, Tim? We're on Dartmoor at a farm called Challicum. Um, It's one of the farm wilder farms that supplies us with beef and lamb, and it's a wonderful place for wildlife. It's an incredibly nature-friendly farm.
1: And each farm has a specific uh, wildlife that they protect, a specific species that they protect, is that right?
2: Um, There are two types of farms we have in the scheme. Um, one set of farms have marsh-tilly butterflies, um, which are very rare and live in boggy, damp meadows like this one. And other farms that are in the scheme have cuckoos, and they're often higher up the hillsides in sort of scrubbier um, sort of tre- vegetation with trees. Some farms have both. In fact, this farm has both. So we, we'll probably hear cuckoos, we'll probably see marsh-tilly butterflies, but there are two types of habitat, basically, that we encourage through this, this scheme.
1: Could you describe the scene that we're in as well, please? Um,
2: should you walk a little bit further? more? We're in a roast pasture on Dartmoor. Um, it's a very exciting place to be because it's brilliant for wildlife. It has about 50 species of plant here, lots of interesting insects, great birds. Um, and already I'm starting to see lots of buttercups. There's ragged robin, the beautiful pink flowers of ragged robin. Um, there's um, cotton grass in places. There's some yellow flag irises. It's very varied. There's very boggy bits, there's drier bits. And that what makes it really, really valuable for wildlife.
1: Is that is that bog cotton?
2: Um, that's um, yeah, well, cotton grass. I call it, but I think yeah, bog cotton. Yeah, um, and it's going to start getting a bit wetter here. Some bits are quite sphagnum-y as well. You see the sphagnum moss, and it's a proper sort of squelchy bog that you don't want to fall in. But I think we'll be. I'll right follow you then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and this is almost sort of permanent water. It's very it's very damp. Oh, all year round. Yeah, all year round it'll be it'll be wet here.
1: Oh, look at that beautiful bobcotton. That's so beautiful. Does it actually get used, the bobcotton, or or not? I
2: don't think so these days. There's probably some ancient use of it, but uh, I'm not not aware of it. Um, There's also quite a lot of orchids around now, a lot of heath-spotted orchids starting to come into flower.
1: So that's one there? That's one
2: there, that lovely pale pink. Heath-spotted. Heath-spotted orchid.
1: Are they particular to Dartmoor?
2: Um, they like upland areas. You find them a lot in the north of Britain and Wales, um, on ancient meadows and commons and um, heath. But here they can be very common. I mean, there are loads across this place. They're, they're, when you go to a place with them, they're very numerous. Um, very pretty little orchids. So you see, it's quite, it's quite a hard gate. It's very tussocky. And that's really important because the butterfly we're, we're looking for, the marsh artillery butterfly, It needs tussocks, um, and that's because its caterpillars spend the winter hiding in them. And then they emerge in the spring on a sunny day and they bask in a kind of sun trap on one side of the tussock. Um, And they feed and then they pupate and they come out around now. So it's it's really important these are managed in in a way that encourages the sort of tussocky vegetation, plenty of their food plant, which is called Devil's Bit Scabious. Um, and you have to graze it just right. If you don't graze it enough, it gets taken over with willows and rushes. The butterflies die out. If you graze it too much, then it's, it's too short, you don't get the tussocks, the food plant might be eaten out, and then you don't get the butterflies. So you have to graze it just right. In fact, here's the food plant here. You see these, these elongate, thin, sort of oval leaves. Those are the leaves of the um, devil's bit scabious. It's not flowering yet. It won't flower till about August. But this is, what they, um, this is what they eat. This is what the females will be looking to lay their eggs on. Mm-hmm. Frog in there. Or is it a toad just scurrying away?
1: <laughs>
2: <gasps> there we are, little toad, Tiny baby toad.
1: Oh, he's absolutely minute. Oops. Oh, and yeah. rather active.
2: He'd have, he'd have um, been a tadpole last year. He's absolutely tiny. So he's
1: got these sort of bits on the side behind his eyes. Do you know what that is?
2: Yeah, I mean, I heard that was there the carotid glands, the, the, where the poison comes from, basically. Um, but they're very pronounced on so this. I haven't seen that before. It's very bright orange behind its head. Mm. And I'm used to them being a bit darker than that and more uniform. It's very, very pretty little tail. He's, like,
1: about the size of your fingernail.
2: Yeah, he's absolutely minute. Or but, uh, thumbnail. I mean, it just shows, you come to someone like this, it's like being in a rainforest. Wherever you look, you see something new, often something you haven't seen before. And that's what biodiversity means, that there's just, it's like sort of fractal thing. You, the closer you look, the more you see, the more's going on. Um, and that's the joy of this. With so many types of plant here, there's potentially about 50 species of plant, that's a lot of insects that can, can feed on them. Just... Are, are you saying that without- the... Oh, there's a marsh <gasps> on that, oh. that big yellow flower there, This um, okay. is a, a marsh marigold, or king carp. And You can just see it's wings folded. Yes. Marsh that's and that's beautiful. It's quite a freshly emerged one. It's quite bright colors. And it's not tatty. They get very tatty as they get older. And when it's, open, it's just it's basking in the sun with its wings closed. As it opens its wings, you can see the sort of checkerboard pattern on its wings, which it's uh, it's very famous for. And it's unique in the UK. I mean, it's not like it's hard to distinguish them from anything else. There are other fritillaries sort of orange butterflies, like it, but none of them have a pattern like this. It's it's completely distinctive. That that checkerboard pattern on its back of black and yellow and orange.
1: It's absolutely stunning. So it's not a it's not a massive butterfly. No, they're small, small butterflies.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, And they're quite they're very graceful. They don't fly very strongly. You'll see them fluttering around as the day warms up, but they're not like an admiral or a peacock or one of those big, strong flying butterflies that just fly around and and vanish. These will generally be flitting around quite low in the meadow, and once the day warms up.
1: So how long are they around for?
2: Um, They about three weeks. They, they hatch out um, typically the last week of May and they're around for the first two weeks of June and that's it. So I mean, most of the year they spend as a caterpillar. Um, the, this, these butterflies will lay their eggs now, the, the eggs will hatch and the larvae will form webs, larval webs, so a bit like a spider's web, they'll form a little web on the food plant which they can protect themselves in. And they will feed all summer long in that until the autumn. And then in the autumn they'll actually go and hibernate in the grass, in the tussocks of grass. Um, and then in the spring, they'll come out again. It's still quite small in the spring, in sort of late February and March, when it gets sunny days. Um, and they'll feed up on the food plant, and then they'll start to grow quite quickly. Um, and then they'll um, pupate in, I guess, sort of April, and then end of May, they hatch. You can see it's just turned around. You can see it's back now, that lovely...
1: I think it knows we're cone. looking at it. It's just giving us a little display. It's behaving
2: <gasps> Off very it goes. nicely, yeah. So it's just it's just fueling up on these on these wonderful marsh marigolds, yellow flowers. Oh, sorry, these are right. Those marsh marigolds. Yeah, so it's getting its uh, its nectar. Oh,
1: what a wonderful sight. It's really quite warm today, isn't it?
2: Yeah. They're a very special butterfly. They, they used to be very widespread across Britain, and many marshy fields would have them. But as agricultural practices have changed, a lot of those fields have been been drained. Um, and now they're they're very rare. They're really just confined to the southwest and um, parts of Wales and the north Northern Ireland. Um, but they they need these sort of boggy meadows, um, which are not very productive for farming. So they've, as these boggy meadows have declined, they've declined, and, and they have been one of our fastest declining um, butterflies.
1: So so the cattle are quite happy in this boggy meadow,
2: you say? Or, or... yeah, the cattle. Um, you have to be careful how you graze it. You probably wouldn't want to put them in in here in winter because it's so boggy they get stuck in the bog um, they churn it up a lot um, typically these would be grazed in late summer in the autumn and just lightly grazed by a few cattle or ponies and um, it's important they're not grazed by sheep because sheep graze the vegetation too low and that doesn't work for the butterflies it has to be horses or cattle and if you don't graze it at all the butterflies die out they need grazing to survive
1: so any um ooh, it's a couple of dragonflies
2: Oh, yes. Yeah, beautiful damselflies. They're, they're red damselfly, they seem to be mating.
1: Oh, so, they look so beautiful when they mate.
2: Everywhere you look, there's, there's life, there's insects, there's birds calling. Here are willow warbler. I think there might be a reed bunting in there, possibly. The...
1: With, with Farm Wilder, so you founded Farm Wilder.
2: Yes, yeah. yeah. When was that? Um about 18 months ago so early we found a farm wild in january 2019 and spent about a year setting it up and the basic principle behind it i mean it's born out of a frustration that farmland wildlife well all wildlife in the uk has been declining catastrophically for years for 50 years and nothing we do seems to put that right so every year there's less and less wildlife in britain and you think there must be something we can do about this and the more i looked into it the more i realized the problem was intensive farming that's what's killing wildlife and because 70% of Britain is farmland, if you lose farmland wildlife, you lose most of our wildlife. So that's what's been going on. And the problem is that farmers are under pressure, partly through government policy, partly through supermarkets, competition to produce food cheaply. So farmers are um, under massive pressure to produce food cheaply. And that means they have to farm very intensively, and that's what's killing wildlife.
1: So how can the farmers that you work with on Farm Wilder... That they can't farm intensively. How do they survive? Do they struggle at the beginning?
2: I mean, the basic principle of farm wilder is that farmland that's got very, very rare species and incredible biodiversity should be worth more. Farmers should be rewarded for having that. Um so... Um, as a consumer, you've got a choice. You could buy meat which has been intensively reared, possibly in South America or America, which is horrendous in terms of environmental quality and standards, or even some in the UK is quite bad for the environment. So you can buy that. That's cheap meat. But what we want to do is create a brand of meat that you could buy knowing that by buying that meat, you were supporting farming that was different, um, that was better for biodiversity and more sustainable. So that's what Farm Wild is all about. It's about rewarding farmers with a slightly higher price for farming in ways that encourage wildlife and are sustainable.
1: So this farm we're on, is it Ch- Ch- Cholcombe. Cholcombe? Farm? Um,
2: this is Chalicum Farm. Chalicum farm. Yeah.
1: So Farm. So when did they start working with you on this, and how did you approach them? Um, we, can we walk yes, for a bit? Will. Are you OK?
2: We'll if we don't fall over. Cholcombe's very well known as being an incredibly wildlife-friendly farm, um, and it is, it is managed for wildlife um, as, as a main aim, as well as some meat production. So it's, it's very well known, they were one of the first farms we contacted. Um, but we have another um, seven or eight farms we work with across Dartmoor and a couple of lowland finishing farms. Um, so it, it's a whole range of farmers, and some are brilliantly wildlife friendly already and sustainable, and some less so. And the whole point of the scheme is to help farmers convert to being more sustainable and to manage land for wildlife in a slightly better way. So it's, it's all about not just rewarding farms who are already there, but helping more farmers to become wildlife friendly and sustainable.
1: So Chalicum specifically does um, you when they sell their beef, it's labelled as fritillary butterfly beef?
2: Um, we um... We um, buy we buy meat off the farmers. We buy animals off the farmers, um, and uh, we don't take all their, all their their animals, and we take some of it. And if it's um, it depends on the farm. For some farms, it'll be fritillary butterfly beef if they've got marsh fritillaries. For other farms, it'll be cuckoo beef if they've got cuckoos. Farm like chalicums actually got both. It's got cuckoos and marsh fritillaries. It's brilliant. So we could market their beef under either label, um, and uh, the lamb is always cuckoo lamb because you can't have lamb grazed on marsh fertility habitat because it destroys it <laughs> oh, okay. so for the cuckoos it's always, for the lamb; it's always <laughs> cuckoos um, but for the beef it can be either cuckoo beef or it can be fertility butterfly beef which is um, what we're looking at here.
1: So you, you're marketing to associate that the farm is protecting the cuckoo and protecting the fertility butterfly but actually they also happen to have comp- very tasty
2: beef. <laughs> uh, they do they have great beef um, but I think the important thing is we're differentiating their meat from sort of bog-standard supermarket meat, which comes from you don't know where, goes into a massive system, you don't know what farm it's come from. We can guarantee that the meat that's got that label on comes from this handful of farms who all work very carefully to protect wildlife and be sustainable. Um, so it's, a, it's it's really a way of of putting the wildlife on the front of the label, and so it's not like having a little label on the on the back, a you know, little logo you don't quite know what it means. It's very clear with our meat. It says on the front on the label either fritillary butterfly beef or cuckoo beef or cuckoo lamb. So you're, we're making it really clear that by buying that meat, paying a tiny bit more for it, you're directly helping endangered species.
1: Oh, so where are their cows? Um, I can't see a cow uh-huh. anywhere. So I can see some, one horse, two, some, two, three
2: horses. There are some cows just over um, the other side of this little lane. Um, I saw some earlier there grazing with their, um, uh, in, in there. Um, yes, there's some cows over there grazing with their calves. I can see some more up on top of the hill.
1: Oh, there I they are on the hill.
2: Generally, at this time of year, they get moved onto the sort of higher um pastures they bring them down in winter they have a, a sort of open barn uh, near here where they can, they can walk out of the barn if they want or they can shelter in the barn if they if they need to if the weather's really bad because it's quite rough in here in, in winter i bet <laughs> so, so they have a good life
1: and they um what what, what um, breed are they
2: um, here they have um, a lot of welsh black which is a very old um, traditional breed um and they have some north devon as well but i think it's mostly welsh black and the ones i can see actually up there i think they look like welsh black
1: I can hear the lamb. Is that their lamb?
2: Um, yep, we can hear the lambs. They've got. I think we've got four breeds. They've got um, Shetland sheep. they have got Icelandic sheep, and those are both very robust, tough, very small breeds of, of, of sheep, which do well in Dartmoor because it's a tough place to live. And they've also. Um, they've also got another one, um, which I can't pronounce. It's some Dutch thing, um, and they're very good um, surrogate mothers, basically. So if you get. Orphan lambs they put them with these dutch sheep to look after them and there's another breed of well wednesdaydale which have great fleece and they sell fleece as well so um it's four, four different kinds but it's mostly it's the it's the Icelandics and the shetlands and um, they are smaller but they're very tasty and they're a wonderful breed and they, and they just do brilliantly up here
1: I do, it's nice to know that dutch sheep are good foster mothers <laughs> <laughs> um so how many farms do you work with um in well it's mostly in, in the south of england isn't it or is it only in the south of england
2: Oh, okay, so, is that a lizard? Some, some just flicked away here. I think it's probably like a lizard. Um, it's funny because they're very, very boggy places. But you see that moving in here? Yeah. Yeah. A bit of a common lizard. Um,
1: is that? It would be. That's what it. There wouldn't be any other. No,
2: that's the only sort to be here. And um, they would
1: love it in the bog.
2: They do, they, they climb out on the tussocks and they sunbathe there, and there's lots of insects to eat, so uh, <laughs> another species you see here sometimes, which I was sort of surprised by, So I thought, you know, up on cold Dartmoor would be lizards, but actually they do very well.
1: Do they hibernate in winter, presumably.
2: They do, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: well, look, there's a lovely
2: um, group of orchids there. And there's another marshatory there, just sunbathing.
1: Oh, that's really close. Oh, it's so beautiful, it's like a stained glass window. Yeah,
2: Isn't... that's exactly it, that sort of tracery of, um, of patterns on its, on its, on its wings
1: yellow and orange with a sort of black outline yeah on yeah. each section
2: yeah it's completely distinct very beautiful and this one's probably been a, a, around for a week or so because it's a bit more faded when they first hatch they're the most brilliant vibrant colors and they gradually fade as they get knocked around a bit and fly about but that's, yeah, that's still a pretty good color
1: yeah it's looking very healthy
2: So, and there's quite a kind of grass here. So, um, this is purple moor grass because you see the ends of the grass are are quite so purpley. It's a very tough species, Um, and this is the the dominant um, sort of grass in in these roast pastures. Um, So, they they call this a roast pasture in in Ireland. I think it's called a rush pasture. In Wales, it's called a roast pasture. In North Devon, it's called a culm meadow. But it's all the same thing, basically. It's a boggy bottom of the valley, acid soil. and there's a cuckoo calling. That's the amazing thing about this farm, is you can be here right by a Marshall <laughs> Artillery butterfly and suddenly hear a cooker call and you look up and, and uh, it's somewhere up on the hillside there.
1: That's so funny because you were looking that way and I was looking the other way. Of course, you, I can't tell it at all where it is.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's, up on the, it's up on the hillside, probably 100 metres above us. And um, cookies are very particular with the sort of place they'll live these days. Um, there are three kinds of cuckoo, three, three different species they parasitize, basically. There are some which live in reed beds and parasitize uh, reed warblers. They're the ones you usually see, see on TV because they're easier to film. And then you see they get cuckoos that um, parasitise dunnocks um, or hedge barrows. Now, they used to be much more common. You used to get them around a lot of Britain, um, but they have virtually died out now. It's very rare to find ones that um, can parasitize dunnocks, and there's various reasons for that, but those sort of cuckoos have almost died out. The ones here, the one we can hear calling is the third sort and these meadow meadowpippets, small brown birds that live in sort of rough meadows and moorlands. And that's what they come here for, to lay their eggs in the nests of pipits. There's another butterfly coming. This is a small pearl boarded artillery flying past. Oh, a different kind. It's a different kind of fritillary. Um, so it's, it's all, we've got marsh fritillaries, we've got small pale-borded fritillaries, we've got a cuckoo calling, and this really is Dartmoor at its best.
1: really don't want to go home at this point.
2: And with the, the cuckoos, the thing that's tricky about farming for cuckoos is you basically have to farm for meadow pipits because the more meadow pipits you get, the more cuckoos you'll get. But it's more complicated than that. And that's because cuckoos specialise in eating hairy caterpillars. So when they come back from migration to Africa in the spring in late April, they need to kind of fuel up again and they eat these really hairy caterpillars, often sort of moth caterpillars um, that you see out in the spring before they pupate. Um, and you need a certain sort of vegetation to get these hairy caterpillars. And what's gone wrong in much of Britain in the lowlands is there aren't many of these hairy caterpillars anymore because we've lost those sort of untidy areas, the rough meadows, um, the areas of bramble and scrub where these hairy caterpillars used to live. But here on Dartmoor, you still get them. There's a lot of horses with them. Quite what's going on? <laughs> um, but um, the uh, you know the cuckoo is up there somewhere, in just on the edge of the moorland, um, and that's because that area has big hairy caterpillars that will eat the adults will eat and also it has the meadow pipits. that they lay their eggs and nests of um,
1: so how do you sorry so how do you how do you protect the meadow pipit on your farm
2: well what meadow pipits like is they like a, a real mosaic of habitat they like to have some grassy areas where they feed they like scrub where they nest it could be sort of willow scrub or um, gorse scrub bracken Um, And they also like damp areas as well, because I think there's there's even more food there. So they've been found to do best where you you get a combination of short grass, boggy areas and scrub. And that's exactly what we've got on this farm. Um, So if you want to have pipits, you need that habitat. But if you want to have cuckoos as well, you need to have hairy caterpillars the cuckoo can eat. You need to have the pipits, And the other thing you need is trees, because cuckoos need trees to call from and to watch the pipits from. Um, and that means the open moorland itself, we can see a lot of that around, it's open moorland treeless, that's no good for cuckoos. It's great for meadow pipits, but it's rubbish for cuckoos because the male cuckoos sing from trees and the female cuckoos spend all their time in trees watching the meadow pipits. If they haven't got trees, they find it hard to do that. So to have perfect cuckoo habitat, you need loads of meadow pipits, and you need to have trees where the cuckoos can sit and perch and watch the meadow pipits. There's a male cuckoo calling again.
1: So, when you say the cuckoo likes to parasitise the meadow pipit, is that what, is that the right expression?
2: Yes, they're nest parasites. So, yeah. So, how
1: does how, how how does that work? What do they actually do?
2: So, what the cuckoos do? The, the male cuckoos arrive and they establish a territory and they call. That's what you hear calling. The female cuckoos are much quieter and they sit around and they spend all their time bird watching which is weird, really. They've come away from Africa, and they did come here for a few weeks, and they sit on trees, short trees, and they watch meadow pipits. And they're incredibly observant. They know where the meadow pipit nests are, they know when they're laying their eggs, because there's a sweet spot, there's a period of time when a cuckoo can get in, can fly into a meadow pipit nest, lay its egg, remove one of the eggs that's there already, and fly off. But if they get it wrong, it doesn't work. The, the, the eggs can't have hatched, they have to have been laid, so that the, the female cuckoos just watch and observe and learn about the meadow pipits. And when the time's right for each nest, they fly in there and try and lay their egg.
1: So they, so they know when to put their egg in there. That's going to hatch at the same time as the meadow pipit eggs.
2: Yeah, basically. That's in, That's just
1: incredible.
2: It is. It is amazing. I mean, there's so much to their to their biology. It's incredible. They 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 lay eggs that mimic the the, the eggs of the meadow pipits, and it's the same for the ones that parasitize dunnocks or reed warblers. Their eggs mimic those species. So these cuckoos' eggs will look like pipit eggs. They're a bit bigger, but not as big as you'd think for a bird of the size of the cuckoo. And that's because if the egg was too big or the wrong colour, the pipit would eject that egg. It would chuck it out of the nest or it would peck it and, and, and destroy it. So the pipits and the cuckoos are in a constant arms race of the cuckoos trying to mimic their pipit eggs more closely and the pipits trying to get better at detecting the cuckoo eggs and chuck them out and destroy them because obviously they don't want to, to lose all their, their, their nestlings to a, to a cuckoo.
1: Uh, why doesn't the... Maybe this is a difficult question. Is, is it swallows or swifts? I'm oh, that's a
2: swallow. Yeah, a swallow's, swallows just flying over. Yeah. And you hear willow warblers calling. buntings, And, of course, the cuckoo.
1: Why, does, why doesn't the, 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 the female cuckoo try and walk through the bog a bit? Why doesn't the female cuckoo want to look after her babies? Why doesn't she want to sit on her eggs? What, what's What's... What's going on there? The
2: cuckoo's strategy is basically a really cunning survival strategy, and I think scientists believe that other species do a bit of that as well. There are some species that will actually lay their egg in another bird's nest. I think it's been seen in blue tits, so I could be wrong about that, but I think other species will do it occasionally, um, whether by accident or by design, people don't know. But it's obviously something that you can do. Rather than look after your own nestling, you could sneak an egg into someone else's nest. So I think in evolutionary terms it's something that happens in other birds but it's evolved much further in cuckoos to the point where they don't look after any young all they do is specialize in laying their eggs in other birds nests.
1: So will they uh, produce several eggs in different nests
2: or just Yeah no a, a cuckoo will um, will lay eggs in maybe twenty or thirty different nests if it's doing well. So it'll it'll search out these nests and watch them and lay one egg in each of these nests um, and then the metapedits will raise its young and that's and then the then the cuckoo's done. Cuckoos actually are not really a British bird, they're an African bird that comes to comes to our shores for maybe six weeks, two months and then it's gone. So they they, they mate.
1: Oh oh, oh
2: oh ah, You're right Yeah, I'm good.
1: Pr- I'll probably fall in yeah. in a minute.
2: So the the cuckoos um, they come here for a few a uh, few weeks, lay their eggs, and then they go and leave the metaphits to do the rest. That's an
1: extraordinary thing. Cuckoos get quite a bad reputation. People don't like them because they think that they they're they're mean to other birds. I mean, it's not necessarily mean, is it? It's just a bit. Well, it's a bit sort of.
2: It's clever. It's clever. It's survival. It's also it's part of ecology. I mean, you need, just as you need sparrowhawks to keep the populations of other species in check, you need, you need predators, you need parasites. And that's what biodiversity does. The more species you have interacting, the more things that can survive. So it's, it's, it's just another way that, um, that nature sort of regulates itself effectively. So, so sort
1: of keeping the meadow pipit population down, but not too much. And keeping the cuckoo population level as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it means you, you get more, more other species. Possibly it means there's more room for other things like skylarks skylarks or other species. Um, but it's, it's, it's what happens in nature. And, and what's interesting as well is that the more animals you get, the more resilient and robust the system is. So And that applies to farming. So intensive farmers have like one species of plant, like ryegrass or wheat or barley in a field, um, and that, and they rely on, on, on chemicals to, to control nature. On a sustainable farm, a, a kind of holistic farm, regenerative farm like this one, you use nature to do that. So you've got lots of different species interacting and they can keep each other in check effectively. And so that principle of the more biodiversity you get, the more resilient the farm is, the less you have to worry about pests. And that's all all because of, because of that and all those interactions.
1: So how are you going to... Um... Spread yourself across the country then, Tim, and sort of <laughs> get hundreds and hundreds of farmers to work with you. Do you have a plan to be quite big or is that rather overwhelming?
2: It's very early days. We've only been going for just over a year. Um, and the main thing we wanted to do was to just see if we could if we could sort of change people's relationship with food a bit. Because up until now, a farm like this here in Dartmoor that has wonderful wildlife, their meat would be worth exactly the same as a farm further down the valley which is intensively managed with no wildlife and that just seems wrong and i think that if people know they can differentiate their their food differentiate the meat they buy and select stuff which is good for the planet which is restoring wildlife which is combating climate change rather than the stuff which is doing the opposite and i think they will so it was it's really an an experiment to to try and develop that that relationship with nature through food and and make that part of our conversation about food You you can buy food that trashes nature or you can buy food which is good for nature
1: but also if we don't look after our insects we won't have any food anyway will we
2: i mean it's absolutely true a lot of farming is 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 very unsustainable i've been surprised the more i've looked into farming just how unsustainable it is in terms of soil erosion soil health and declining pollution flooding Um, it's it it has to be changed we have to reform our farms uh, and make them sustainable Um, and if we don't do that you're right, we lose the pollinators, we lose the soil, which is even more serious. So it's got to happen, um, but I think it'll happen more easily if we can if we can take the public with us and we can make people more aware of the consequences of the food they buy on the planet and to make people realise that you, know, you have a choice. If you buy the cheapest possible food, that food is probably damaging the planet. If you pay a little bit more for organic or for our food or pasture-fed meat, um, then you're actually helping to make the planet better and to restore wildlife.
1: And you have these rather beautifully illustrated labels, don't you? That you put with these uh, with your meat. Um, where where do you sell your meat?
2: We sell our meat in a, in a variety of places. We sell a number of butchers in the Southwest. We also sell online um, with our online retailer called Fresh Range, um, who sell nationally. Um, and we sell, some of the butchers sell to restaurants as well. Of course, that's all stopped with COVID-19. Um, but it's, uh, those are the main things. It's online sales, it's high street butchers, um, and it's to restaurants.
1: I thought we were going to get away without mentioning COVID-19 <laughs> today, but that's okay. It was a very brief moment. Um, so, yeah, you have these labels that are beautifully illustrated, um, and then they have some kind of explanation on them, don't they, about where the meat's from and what it's protecting and...
2: Is that, is that right? Yeah, we feel that the labelling is really important to, um, to the meat we sell um, because we want people to, to appreciate what's gone into that meat, and the wildlife it supports, the sustainability. So um, the labels talk about the wildlife on the front. So we have cuckoo beef, fritillary butterfly beef, cuckoo lamb. So we're upfront about the wildlife we're protecting and we have more information on the back about how it's farmed sustainably, how the farmers are converting to being pasture-fed, how it's more sustainable. But above all, we try to make them really beautiful and we have illustrations that show the effectively the, sort of, the whole environment. So the fritillary butterfly beef label shows the habitat we're standing in now. So if you look on that label, you will see little orchids, you'll see the willows, you'll see meadow sweets, you'll see the butterflies, dragonflies... Um, there's a willow warbler, um, there's a a grey wagtail. So it's all about telling the story of the ecology of these habitats these farmers are are protecting on the label. So it's really clear what you get when you buy that meat.
1: I think that's a really interesting point that you said about telling the story of where our food comes from because we don't really necessarily think about the story of where our food comes from, and maybe that needs to happen more. I was just wondering if you you don't do... um, vegetables. (laughs) vegetables. <laughs> it's all meat. Is that...
2: well, when I started Farm Wilder, I thought we'd do a whole range of products. I wanted to do a beer. I looked into doing some muesli, some flour. Um, but it made sense just to specialise to start with. And and actually, meat is the is the most important one to crack first, because Britain is such an important meat producer, because we have so much grassland. And because the debate about meat has become so polarised, and so many people saying you've got to go vegan to save the planet, and that's just not true. So it actually meat is a good place to operate because we can be part of telling the story that meat can be a good thing for the planet it can restore wildlife it can restore soil health Um, so that seemed like a good place to start Um, meat's also interesting because people think people look at green fields like where I live in Somerset oh isn't it lovely beautiful green countryside rolling hills etc Actually, those are as bad for wildlife as the flat, lifeless monocultures of wheat in the east of Britain, in East East Anglia. Just because it's green and grassy doesn't mean it's good for wildlife. Many intensive dairy and and beef farms grow pretty much one crop, which is ryegrass, which is fertilised, and that's not good for wildlife. You don't get any wildlife in there. It's bad for the soil. You have to rely on chemicals to fertilise it um, and to, to, to kill weeds. So actually just drawing attention to the fact that a lot of our meat production is deeply unsustainable is really important and and through Farm Wilder we're trying to shine a light on the fact that there are farmers who are doing something different um, who are farming in a much more sustainable way using more variety of plants to graze looking after wildlife and looking after the soil
1: if, if, it, So take this um, bog, boggy meadow that we're in today I mean there's no way you could grow anything on it, any food on it presumably, so the, the, the fact that it can work for Beef cattle means that you're sort of it's it's a it's a double winner, isn't it? Because you're looking after the wildlife, and you're able to, and the beef are able to eat this. Grass. I can't believe how they eat this grass. It's, it's it's quite hard grass, but they've got four stomachs, haven't they?
2: So. Yeah, I mean it's not a productive habitat, um, and um, it's it's not somewhere you could you couldn't plow it and so anything. You could drain it and you could make it slightly better for for grazing, Um, but then you'd lose all the wildlife. You'd also lose its ability to retain water. This is another important function they have. They hold back water from heavy rain. They release it all year round. So having these sort of roast pastures like this is very good for the rivers further downstream. And it stops flooding as well of human settlements. So there's lots of roles they have as well as food production. However, I mean much of Britain is grassland. Much of Britain couldn't really be used to grow crops on. So we have a choice. Do we do we try and make it more intensive, um, as we've been doing, or do we protect it for wildlife, or do we let it go entirely and rewild it? Some people would say, Dartmoor, rewild it, cover it in trees. It would once have been an Atlantic rainforest. Um, Return it to trees and just let nature take over. But if you did that, you'd lose all the wildlife as well. A lot of the wildlife you certainly wouldn't get pastures like this. So we think the best way to treat these sort of parts of the country is to graze them in harmony with nature, where you can you can, you can produce some meat, um, but by selling it at a slightly higher price, you can encourage farmers to look at it, look after this land. You can make it much more economically sustainable um, to farm these areas, which is what the wildlife needs. Because and these areas have been farmed for thousands of years in this sort of gentle, um, non-intensive grazing. Um, and if you stop doing that, you'll, the wildlife will decline, just as surely as if you intensify it, wildlife will decline. So you need to find ways to incentivise farmers to try and gently manage these areas through light grazing so the wildlife can sustain.
1: They're not getting any... Um, uh, what's it called? So pay, uh, stewardship payments. What's it called?
2: Stewardship payments, or...?
1: Yes, they're not getting... Are they, are they getting any
2: for subsidies for, for what they do? Farmers who have great habitat like this are eligible for, um, for high level stewardship scheme grants, which can help. Um, the problem with them is that they just focus on a single part of the farm that's very, very good for wildlife. They don't look at the whole farm. What Farm Wilder does is we encourage farmers to look after the special habitat better. but We also encourage them to be sustainable across the whole farm because you can't really treat nature, nature in isolation. And if you have a, a little fragment of good habitat, the wildlife will eventually die out you need to try and link it together you need to create more habitat and you have to look after the whole farm ecosystem and to do that I think you really have to make it more economically viable for farmers to farm in a sustainable way through food pricing as well as through grants and and other measures
1: So um, how do you I mean have you ever tried to visit a farm that's um, intensive factory farming cattle beef cattle and talk to them about this?
2: Um, I mean, it's tough for farmers because they are businesses. They've got to be economically viable. They have been led by government policy down a route where they're intensively farming, they're reliant on chemicals, and it's not very nature-friendly. And that's quite hard to get out of, and it takes a, a big sort of mind mindset shift for people to start to farm with nature. So it's not an easy journey. It takes years, potentially even generations, to, for farms to t- t- change course. But I think if we can show that you can farm sustainably and with great wildlife um, and make more of a profit from it, then I think that's a way forward that other farmers who are more intensive at the moment might start to look at that and think, well, maybe we can do more of that. And make more of a profit, you said. What's quite interesting about these upland farms is they're, they're very marginal. Um, a lot of the farmers really struggle financially. Um, it's, it's a really tough life being, a, being an upland farmer in Britain. Um, we work with uh, an organisation called the Pasture-Fed Livestock Association um, and they... Um, They have a system that encourages farmers to to use nature effectively, to to not um, feed grain to their animals, only to feed them grass and other forage. And in doing that, you have to use nature, you have to use a more variety of plants, you have to use legumes and herbs, and you have these things called herbal lays where you can potentially even sow, almost like an artificial wildflower meadow, that's much better nutritionally for the, for, the, for the cows and sheep. Because if you stop giving them grain, you then have to, to look to their nutrition in other ways. And having more diversity of forage is a really good way to do that. Um, and what's interesting, when farmers start to farm in a pasture-fed way, they reduce the amount of fertiliser they put on the land and they reduce the number of animals they, they've got and that can actually be more cost effective because they're saving loads of money not buying loads of nitrogen fertilisers or pesticides also the animals are less stressed and happier their vet bills go down um, so even though these farmers can start to, um, to have fewer animals on the land um, because it's not so intensive their profitability can go up and, and that's where farm wilder comes in as well. Because if we can give these farmers a premium to encourage them to farm in this way, then it makes it even more financially viable for them. So they're spending less on, on fertilisers. They're getting a little bit more for the meat they're that they're selling, and they generally have a much better environment and a, and a better way of life.
1: Um, you mentioned nutrition there, and um, it's something I'm really interested in. And I and, and I'm I'm thinking that with the bog grass here, that what's the grass called again? And
2: we've got um, purple moor grass. Um, is the dominant grass here? It's quite tough and quite coarse.
1: Okay, I'm a, I'm presuming that the purple moor grass in this um, meadow that we're in, that the cattle would come through, has to be highly nutritious because it's never been messed around with. It's never been ploughed up. It's never been chemically sprayed. So surely it's got amazing minerals and, and and vitamins in it anyway.
2: I don't know about the the minerals and the vitamins. I, I do know that it's it's a tough grass. There's a time of year when it's nutritious for the animals, but once it dies. Then it's quite tough for them to eat. Um, so it can take over if it's not managed in the right kind of way. But I think what gives the cows the amazing nutrition is the variety here. And there's research that the cows will actually self-medicate. Um, they are, I mean cows are woodland animals, effectively, on woodland clearings, woodland edge. They like trees, they love to eat trees. So a cow in here will be eating the birch we can see behind us, the willow, and they'll be eating the purple moor grass, they'll be eating some of the um, some of the flowers, some of the herbs. Um, and it's that variety. And cows know what they want. And if they're a bit deficient in one thing or another, they'll they'll go and eat that. In fact, if they if they're not feeling very well, there's there's uh, some evidence they will they will eat willow for the um, the aspirin in it, effectively the salicylic yes. acid. So they will they will self medicate and they will choose what to eat according to the nutritional value of it and the minerals they need.
1: And that will be well, And we will be eating the result of that at some point. So that's got to be
2: good. Yeah, there's increasing evidence that um, that, that meat that's um, from pasture-fed only animals um, is more nutritious. It's got it's various um, minerals and and oils and omega, omega oils that are better for us. So it's, uh, it's it's certainly better for nature. It's better for us. It's better for the animals. They're happier. It's better for the planet. So it's in every respect, turning our farming to be more nature-focused makes sense. And. um... You, we, you mentioned a, a little while ago about
1: how some people would like to say, well, why don't we just take all the meat away and, and, and we can all be vegans? And you said, well, that's a, not a good idea for the planet or wildlife. So could you just expand a bit, on, a, a bit more on that?
2: I mean, a lot of people have, um, have rebelled against industrial meat, intensive meat, by going vegan. And I don't blame them, to be honest, in some ways, because it's pretty horrendous. It is horrendous, yeah. um, But the trouble is, it's become very... Um, <laughs> we're going right to there, there's a, a bit of a hole the, um, the reality is that there's good meat and there's bad meat just like electricity you can have electricity from renewables which is sustainable you can have electricity from fossil fuels from coal it's not it's the same with meat you can have good meat which grows off, comes off land like this and you can have bad meat which is from monocultures of rye grass um, or from feedlots in the US or places where um, rainforest used to grow that's the bad meat and I think what we're trying to do is to differentiate meat so if you want to, to help the environment, you can still eat meat, yes you should eat less meat, but when you do eat meat, you should buy meat which is better for the planet, better for you, better for wildlife, and the sort of meat that comes off this and other farm wilder farms. So what's, I think what's I mean, that um, this grass, do you know this grass? This one or this I don't know what that one is. Um, actually this one grass, it's bog asphodel. That's a beautiful little yellow flower that will be out a bit later. Oh, so um, it's... This it, is the old seed heads from last year.
1: Yes, it's very dry, but it will come out a bit later.
2: Yeah. If we look in some of the boggy areas, you might find some... Might find some so what's great about this is it's so varied. We've got willow trees. We've got bits with yellow flag iris, quite tall. We've got rushes. We've got dry areas. You can see a bit of heather coming into the dry areas here. Oh, yeah. Um, we've got the cotton grass. We've got the um, devil's a bit scabious. That's the mushteri food plant there. If we head over into the really squelchy, sphagnum, boggy bits like this, you can see it's very different again. You've got bog bean here, bog these bean. little white flowers, are bog ah. bean flowers, they're beautiful. They're quite sort of hairy flowers, they're covered in, in little white hairs all around. They're very beautiful. But there's also usually a plant called sundew here, which is um, a plant that eats.
1: I'm very happy Insect, bee possibly. on that. On that um, what's the flower called again? The meadow. So um, this is one called. This is bog bean. Bog bean. Um, happy also, bee on the bog bean. It's yeah. obviously not scared of the hairs. Those hairs must be there for a reason to protect it from some kind I know, of. I don't
2: know why. It's just amazing the, the flower design. It's just got little hairs coming off. It, it looks it makes not look very beautiful. Um, but there should also be some sundew here, which is a carnivorous plant that only survives in very Acid areas where there's, there's very little nutrition, that's why they've taken to eating insects because they need the extra um, extra um, protein, basically, which they, they, they can't get nitrogen from the ground very easily, so they get it from insects. Let's see if we can find of like that. See, the whole place is just sort of peppered with orchids yeah they're, they're yes
1: orchids do you know how long they're out for they, they, do they have quite short a quite short, short again yeah, yeah I think
2: probably a, two or three weeks at most um,
1: is, did you say heather yes yeah
2: there's heather yeah. in the drier areas yeah. here um, oh. and gorse coming in in places which farmers um, try to control to take over
1: oh you don't want the gorse to take over okay um,
2: no you um Part of what grazing does is to keep out some of the trees and shrubs that come in, and so they'll keep the willow back. But even with a bit of grazing, the farmer still needs to um, cut some of the willow, and cut out the gorse, maybe burn the gorse, get rid of it occasionally. And so it has to be actively managed, otherwise otherwise, basically the, the habitat deteriorates and the butterflies die out. So that's quite a lot of work. It is, yeah. I mean, having said that, these are still useful places for the farmer. So if we get a very, if we get a really bad drought, um, and the grass stops growing on the hills here they can bring the cattle and the sheep down here particularly the cattle actually in here late summer and there'll be greenery for them to eat um, it'll keep the cattle going so they're all part of the kind of ecology of a farm here and the way the farmer manages it they have lowland land that's, um, that can be used earlier in the year before the before the grass starts growing higher up um, then they take the cattle and the sheep higher up in the, in the summer um, and then bring them back down in the autumn and the, the roast pasture is all part of that and it has you know, grass when it's not growing elsewhere just because it's so wet all year round
1: I was just going to ask I don't suppose, um, maybe you've already told me about this but these very, these leaves these brown green leaves that are in the water what's that, is that what that, what's that I mean,
2: these are basically Look, pond plants what was that? Tim on my finger oh that's a mayfly Great, so a little little tiny mayfly So there is, um, I don't don't think it would live in the bog but there's a little stream down there it may have come from um, which is still flowing nicely despite the fact it hasn't rained for two months So these places are wonderful, wonderful absorbing water and feeding small streams Um, and the part we're standing in here, I mean it's it's, it's kind of, this is pondweed effectively and there are times a year this will be even deeper Um, and um, it, it just shows that sort of diversity everywhere you look the vegetation is a little bit different here
1: and the mayfly is, a f- is, is, is the food of the salmon and the
2: trout, is that right? It is indeed, yeah, very important, and a great indicator of clean aquatic habitat. So if you've got mayflies, you know it's a clean, pure river, which all the rivers on Dartmoor around here are. They're, they're wonderfully, wonderfully clean.
1: Are they fished?
2: Uh, yep, there are, um, there's a, a river called the Dart, which um, comes off Dartmoor. In fact, are several rivers which are very good for trout, also for sea trout, and some salmon as well. And so... Part of the reason those rivers still have sea trout and salmon is because Dartmoor feeds clean, cool water into them year-round. And that's that's a a real value to those those rivers um, close to the coast that they have Dartmoor providing water for them.
1: Making me rather hungry. (laughs) (laughs)
2: There's walkers there. Please. What did you say, sir? Nice patch of orchids there, just...
1: Yeah, oh no, the nice orchids one. are quite beautiful, amazing. Oh, and the hairy flower, but I'm so bad at remembering names.
2: Bog bean, hairy one. Bean. Yeah. bean, Beautiful, white, hairy flower. And there are thistles, and there are these rushes, and buttercups. Forget the buttercups. get the forget-me-not as well, which is very beautiful, and the pink ragged robin. They're very characteristic of this sort of vegetation. Here's some, little um, forget, forget me not. Oh, this little tiny forget me not flowers, well just spotted. beautiful tiny. with blues and pinks. Oh. And here we can see a bit of, um, bit of gorse. Oh look, here's a, here's a horse. It's a horse. Oh, a horse.
1: Yeah. It's not a, it's not a wild Dartmoor pony. It's, it's a, it's the
2: farmer's horse, isn't it's it? It's farmer's horse. Yes. Yeah. And uh, nice place for it to be. Plenty of water to drink. Plenty of uh, fresh green grass, even though it's getting a bit dry on the on the hillsides. It's uh, still quite damp in here. And and horses horses graze these habitats well. Some farmers just keep horses on them. Some keep cattle as well. Um, And uh, the way horses eat and the way cattle eat is good for this sort of habitat because they rip up whole chunks of grass, and that creates holes where other things can come in. And this this horse looks like he's very happy here, trying to get through, trying to get his way. Um,
1: Do you know this one, um, Tim?
2: what's that um, I don't it might be a buttercup I'm not sure that's a type of clover there um, you get the vetch here as well which um, food plant for common blue butterflies you also see here so I mean it's just everywhere you look there's a different sort of plant you go for the boggy area but one sort of the willows in I, lo- I love these areas that are just just on the edge. For some reason, I think there's a little stream running down there and it's really overgrown. There's lots of willows. You can hear a willow warbler singing, which is just a, a glorious sound.
1: If we go closer to the trees, might be here, we, we might be able to get a bit closer to the birdsong.
2: Yeah, and we should uh, we should see the, the willow warblers. I think they've got a, a nest just up the way. I saw some with insects in their beaks earlier, which looks a bit worried when i went yeah. Oh. So, yeah, the, the willow warbler is one of the species that does really well in its habitat because it likes all the insects it generates as an impact it likes the willow. So that's it singing right here, here, that lovely bubbling descending call. That's the, the willow warbler. That's the willow warbler. Beautiful sort of bubbly descending call. Just one of my favourite sounds of summer. It just just lifts your soul when you hear that. Amazing. Yeah, small pearl board. Small pearl boarded is flying past. Slightly, slightly more orange and faster flying than the marsh artillery. Oh, another artillery. So we've we've seen p- just two types. We've of Two types of artillery: the, the marsh artillery and the small pearl board artillery. And they both live in this habitat. Although it's the marsh artillery that's the real specialist. It doesn't live in, in other places. So. So that's, that's why that's you
1: climate. chose that one. Yeah,
2: and because it's so beautiful as yeah. well. And here you can see the, um, the encroaching willow. If, if farmers didn't manage this, the, the willows would take over. So it's important they cut it back periodically to keep the, the meadow fairly open. But the, the, the cattle and the horses will do that as well. They'll, they'll browse the, the birch, the willow, the sallow here that's coming in.
1: Oh, okay. And we've got some, um, are they wild irises?
2: Yes, these are the yellow flag irises, our native iris. That, that willow warbler's really loud now, you can hear it singing right above our heads. These scrubby willow areas are just perfect for willow warblers. They'll be nesting somewhere in a tussock. They're almost identical to, uh, to chiff chaffs you know, The legs are slightly different colours, slight colour difference, but they're you know, to the layman, they're, they're virtually identical. But the song is so different, that willow warbler descending core compared to the chiffchaff, chaff chaff makes it really easy to tell which, you, which you're dealing with. And here it's very much the, the willow warblers like this one. You can see it's slightly drier here. Fewer of the orchids, but there are damp patches still. We've got the iris here, we've got the willow, um, and it's all just this variety you get in, the, in this habitat. Where every patch is different. And you can hear the cuckoo again. It's calling just from up the hillside. I mean, this is classic mediterranean habitat. You've got areas of short grass, damper areas. You've got scrub, hedges, um, and this is this is you know, they'll be nesting all over here right up the side of the moor moorland there, and um, into the distance. So it's it's great metapop habitat, and when you've got the trees as well. That's what makes it great cuckoo habitat too.
1: Um, did Dartmoor? Do you know? Did Dartmoor used to have a lot more trees? Is there a problem with trees on Dartmoor, is it or is it natural moorland that's been like that for
2: centuries? I think historically Dartmoor would have been much more covered in trees. People talk about a kind of Atlantic rainforest, which I would once have covered it. Um, but I think as long as it's been farmed, which is thousands of years, people would have cleared back those trees, um, would, have, would have opened up the, uh, the meadows, um, the commons, the heaths. Um, and that's what we see now. It's a mosaic of all those sort of habitats. Um, and it would be nice to see some more moorland um, converted into in, in, in the forest, I think, to have more woodland here, to see some areas fully rewilded. But the problem with rewilding is that if you don't control it through large grazers, then you end up with just woodland. And If, if Dartmoor was completely let go, if it was rewilded entirely, you'd end up with closed canopy woodland. And that wouldn't be very good for wildlife, because you'd lose all the wonderful meadow wildlife. So I think the best thing for it really is is a sort of a mixed approach. We have some areas where maybe we do rewild and and let return to woodland, but other areas where we use herbivores like cattle and sheep and horses, maybe pigs, to kind of mimic what animals would have done naturally to kind of keep the forest open, to keep the the woodland glades, the clearing, the heathland areas. I think the more variety of of habitat you can have, the more wildlife you'll have. So uh, I think uh, rewilding can be part of the future of Dartmoor, but I'd hate to see a lot of it in the way that some people are advocating.
1: Um. So, Tim, what's next for you with um, Farm Wilder? What 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 are you up to?
2: Um, it's still very early days for Farm Wilder. We're building up the number of uh, of people who are. Um, who are buying the meat, numbers of butchers, restaurants, online sales. We're trying to trying to do that. We're also looking at other products as well and we'd like to, to try and launch some other meat products. We're also wondering about trying to launch some other hubs across the UK and it'd be great. I mean, At the moment, we're based in the southwest, west and we've missed our meat coming from Devon. It'd be nice to expand into, um, into Somerset, into Cornwall. Maybe we could do something similar in, in the east of England, perhaps in Kent, something in Wales, perhaps in the north. Um, so there's lots of potential and I think um, it's exciting because it's I think it's, it's, it's great that there's so much interest in this now. People are starting to care more about where their food comes from. They're starting to care more about climate change, biodiversity loss. Um, so it's exciting to be part of, that, part of that movement where we're trying to reconnect people to how farming can be done in a way that is sustainable. And that's what we're all about.
0: And what a wonderfully encouraging story. And hats off to Tim Martin for the great work he and his organisation is doing to help farmers grow our food profitably and sustainably. More cuckoos, please, and our eyes. You can find out more about Farm Wilder at the website farmwilder.org. Thanks also to Annabelle Ross for expertly recording that socially distanced adventure. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do send me some feedback to my email address, editor at countryfile.com. And please, please leave some likes and comments on iTunes or wherever else you listen to the podcast. It really helps us. So you've been listening to the BBC Country Farm Magazine podcast with me, Fergus Collins. The podcast is produced in Bristol by Jack Bateman. Thanks so much for listening and goodbye for now.